Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. It's the week of May 16th through the 19th, the year of 2023. It is smoky outside, or at least it was yesterday. Oh my it was goodness. very. That was unreal. I haven't seen anything like that. It reminded me, the comparison that I kept coming to is I was like, is this what it was like when people woke up and had ash on their vehicles from Mount St. Helens? Like, this is, <laughs> this is nuts. Is this the end? Yeah, I don't know. Well, you were uh, not alive. I was not really cognizant. Not- yeah. I don't even think I was alive, actually. Let's. It's 80s, but I, let's look it up. No, I think. Yeah, no, I think you. Uh, no, no. During so, the downtime, I'll Helens. look it up Mount and Saint I'll Helens. see whether I lived through that. I know I lived through Haley's comet, uh, but not uh, the eruption in Washington. And there we go. Uh, is <laughs> is there anything we need to do before the ex parte summary? I don't think so, other than I will mention, um, this is always the, the mark. For a lot of people, it's Memorial Day. This is my mark for when summer is actually ushered in. It's state uh. track weekend um, for a lot of people in the state of Nebraska. You know, one of the bigger outdoor events we have, everybody from all over the state. A young summer's man's fancy began. turns to love. Yeah, exactly. Road work starts in Nebraska. Farm equipment Oh, my favorite season. I love it. It's a great season. Construction. Did you enjoy construction season this morning? Hey, let's not talk about it. <laughs> Five minutes late. That's not a problem. All right. Ex parte summer. Here we go. Carson, you got the first one. Yes. So the first case we have is State v. Wheeler and uh, 404 evidence. I have, uh, I'm going to say Schulman v. Temperley, and that is a summary judgment, statute of limitations, notice, pleading. Uh, State v. Ham, waiver of appeal. All right, let's start with the first one, Carson. Go right ahead from the Nebraska Supreme Court. Yes, so we start off with a criminal opinion from the Nebraska Supreme Court. Uh, As I stated in the ex parte summary, State v. Wheeler. Uh, This is on a petition for further review from the Court of Appeals. So the Court of Appeals had already affirmed uh, the decision in uh, State v. Wheeler and the defendant's conviction uh, for possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. Um, and here, Wheeler is essentially saying that uh, the district court had entered a um, verdict that was unsupported by sufficient evidence um, and that there um, were multiple um, assignments of error relating to ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, the Court of Appeals had concluded th- that these assignments um, had failed, uh, both because there was sufficient evidence to support the conviction um, and that uh, there was no ineffective assistance of counsel. And the Supreme Court eventually comes to the same conclusion that there wasn't an effective assistance of counsel, but for different reasons. Um, the brief facts, just uh, for a little bit of background, is that essentially there was a a drug dealing operation that was going on among three people. Uh, two of the individuals decided, or, or one of the individuals decided that he was not getting the amount of money that he was due. And so he went with the other partner to the trailer house of the third partner, Wheeler, uh, to get his money. Uh, the allegations go that he uh, knocked on the door, had a uh, some form of, I believe, like a, a giant flashlight, like a, a good sized flashlight that he was going to use to defend himself. He knocks on the door and As a part of a a scuffle incident, uh, Wheeler shoots uh, the uh, individual, his his business partner, who's coming to get money. And so that's where uh, the facts uh, come from. He's eventually charged with um, assault uh, with a deadly weapon. Uh, He is found not guilty of those by the jury and is only convicted of the the 
use of a firearm of a by a prohibited person or possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. And so here, the facts that actually become interesting and uh, relevant are the discussions about uh, the character evidence, the 404 evidence of whether this person was known to possess a firearm and whether he was possessing a firearm at the time. And so the first uh, piece of evidence that comes in is that uh, trial counsel was ineffective for failing to object to Rule 404 to the trial testimony uh, by the two uh, other uh, drug dealer partners here that they observed a Glock in Wheeler's apartment uh, sometime before the shooting and that Wheeler had a reputation for carrying a uh, firearm. And so this is covered by 404.1, which renders all propensity evidence inadmissible unless it is first offered by an accused and even then only when it evidences a pertinent character trait. And so here, and this is kind of where the Supreme Court differs from the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court found that trial counsel could have objected to this evidence, um, but then Wheeler still must demonstrate that he was prejudiced by trial counsel not objecting. And so here they have uh, recognized that an error is prejudicial only when it cannot be said to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. And so here they found that this was harmless error, uh, wasn't prejudicial, and there was other evidence that demonstrated uh, that he could have possessed this firearm. And so therefore, even if there was an issue on the objection of the 4041 evidence here, uh, it was um, not error. And so then we move to uh, the Rule 4042 piece, uh, which is an inclusionary rule of evidence. It provides the evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts may be admissible for the per for purposes other than propensity, and um, proof of another distinctive act is, admi is admissible in a criminal prosecution when there is some legal connection between the two upon which it can be said that one tends to establish the other or some essential fact at in issue. And so here um, they were essentially saying that uh, because of his prior possession of this firearm and because of seeing this firearm other uh, times, one of the um, accusers here, one of the other partners had said that he had seen him always carrying this tan uh, Glock pistol with an extended magazine. And so that became kind of the crux of the issue here. And uh, the Supreme Court deals with this by saying essentially that the evidence was only a logical inference. And the fact that the Glock was observed in Wheeler's apartment at a time before the shooting occurred did not reflect on his character. And so it wasn't even encompassed by 404-2. And therefore, um, it wasn't air to have that evidence admitted because it wasn't in violation of 404-2. It was simply an inferential piece of evidence. And so the um, Supreme Court affirmed uh, the Court of Appeals decision. Uh, albeit on on a little bit different grounds. All right, uh, Schumann v. Temperley. This is a civil matter, uh, medical malpractice claim. The district court granted summary judgment for an ophthalmologist after some cataract surgery. The um, date of the filing was April second, twenty twenty. The date of the second cataract surgery that's kind of subject to the medical malpractice claim was April 2nd, 2018. In the answer that was provided by the ophthalmologist, they did not allege that statute of limitations as affirmative offense, but they did say that there was failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Now, this was at the pleading stage. They engage in significant discovery and then uh, the ophthalmologist files a motion for summary judgment. They allege uh, in the motion that there was a failure to state a claim. 
But all of the assertions in support of the motion and what was alleged are regarding the statute of limitations. They're basically saying, hey, the statute of limitations ran on April 1st, 2020, because that was outside of the two-year statute of limitations. And so you had to um, find the statute of limitations didn't apply. And they also alleged in their motion for, uh, in their prayer for relief, they said that for such other relief as the court deems just and equitable. Ah, uh, the catch-all. Uh, they had that in there, and uh, they all, the district court um, found and, and focused solely on the statute of limitations issue in its order. So it uh, um, granted the motion for summary judgment and basically said this is outside the statute of limitations. There were other things alleged in the discovery that weren't exactly pled in the motion for summary judgment. They had a, uh, the, the ophthalmologist had an affidavit that said, I followed the standard of care, there wasn't any breach, and even if there was, I mean, even if he's having some, some bad issues related to the cataract surgery, he doesn't have any causation to the involvement of me or my practice or, or what I did in the cataract surgery. So there was no focus of that on the, on the summary judgment order. It was solely focused on the um, statute of limitations issue. The district court ultimately said the statute of limitations applies and that the claim should be dismissed. There, the previous cataract surgery that I don't think anybody was arguing about was sometime in March 2018, and nobody is, is alleging anything from there. So that was clearly barred by the statute of limitations. But the April 2nd, 2020 filing based on the April 2nd, 2018 cataract surgery, the district court said that was um, outside of the statute of limitations and was barred and dismissed. Now, they appeal. Um, the plaintiff appeals and says that the statute of limitations was an affirmative defense that is waived if not pled. Uh, which is the law, and they did not uh, set forth the statute of limitations affirmative defense in their pleadings. Now, the defendant here argues that the failure to state a claim is included includes a statute of limitations, right? If you if you're outside of the statute of limitations, you're also failing failing to state a claim because you can't do that. Now, the Supreme Court here um, agrees with that to a certain extent. They say at the pleading stage. So if this was a motion to dismiss, not a motion for summary judgment at the pleading stage, um, sure, failure to state a claim may equal statute of limitations. If it's on the pleadings, on the face of the pleadings, you can show that it's outside of the statute of limitations. So that's not always going to include that, uh, especially in a motion for summary judgment. Now, they also go and solve the computing time issue that the district court um had here, and they say that April 2nd was actually the last day, April 2nd, 2020, was actually the last day to file the um, complaint based on the April 2nd, 2018 cataract surgery, so the statute of limitations for that issue um, doesn't exist, and they ultimately reversed the district court and remanded uh, for further uh, directions. Now, they were made some specific language here that they want to emphasize, they emphasize that this opinion should not be understood to hold that every motion for summary judgment must precisely identify the specific grounds upon which summary judgment is sought. Thank you very much. That's notice pleading. Let's, let's not worry about that. They also say we are aware of nothing, however, that would preclude the defendant here, the, the ophthalmologist, from properly seeking summary judgment on, the, on an alternative basis presented here after the cause is remanded. And the, the basis they presented was uh, there was no expert testimony saying that there was a breach of the standard of care. 
So let's go back and, and most likely here, you're probably going to have a summary judgment based on the uh, lack of any controverted fact regarding the breach of the standard of care. So that was uh, reversed and it's going to go back to the district court to solve outside of sta uh, summary or statute of limitations ground. So, you know, plead statute of limitations as an affirmative defense and that failure to state a claim does encompass statute of limitations, but only at the pleading stage. And then um, there's some other summary judgment language I think you can parse from that. But otherwise, uh, you know, interesting reversal. If you have something like this, take a look. I was going to say some good pleading um, law in there. And then the other piece that I just want to drop in there, you know, shout out John Lenich, who gets cited again in there heavily. Um, you know, our, our Nebraska Supreme Court does that regularly. Yeah. And, and what a service he provides to. Um, he taught me and I bought his book. Everyone, exactly. I was going to say, if you don't have <laughs> if you don't have John's civil procedure book, uh, pick that up because that I, is a Bible. I'm a little lax on the updates, though. I got I get stopped paying Westlaw for the updates. Do yeah. I need to do that? He updates well, though. Okay. Well, maybe I, I need to do that. I, I've seen him, I mean, literally a day after the opinion drops. Oop, there's a new footnote. I mean, it's crazy. All right. Well, what do we got last uh, Nebraska All right, Supreme yes. Court? Last Nebraska Supreme Court case, State v. Ham. Uh, this is an appeal from a plea-based conviction, and the crux of the argument on appeal is um, in relation to the defendant waiving his right to appeal as a part of a stipulation at the time of sentencing. Um, and here the state was agreeing not to pursue a habitual criminal enhancement as a part of that plea agree agreement and stipulation. Uh, so the main piece that I'll skip to here is uh, when a and when a waiver of uh, right to appeal is enforceable and uh, the elements that have to be addressed there, um, the appeal <clears throat> is enforceable if the appeal falls within the scope of the waiver. The defendant knowingly and voluntarily waived his his or her right to appeal and enforcing the waiver would not result in a miscarriage of justice. And so here Ham is arguing that the plea. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and sentencing agreement. It's that smoke in the air. Yeah, All exactly. Right. It's terrible. It's still back from Canada. All right, let's but go. But the plea and sentencing agreement is void because, but for the ineffective assistance of counsel in CR 21-119, he would not have been convicted, so in a separate case, and would not have entered into the agreement, and that therefore he entered into the agreement unknowingly and involuntarily. And so the Supreme Court disagrees with that, and they essentially hold that the ineffective assistance of counsel claims uh, do not render a, an appeal waiver invalid except to the extent deficient representation in negotiating or advising the waiver rendered it unknowing or involuntary. So it has to be on the waiver. And thus, Ham's appeal was invalid because he did not allege trial counsel's performance in negotiating um, the plea and sentencing agreement or advising him to accept uh, it. And so here the, the court also did a great job of making sure that he addressed all of these pieces when the stipulation was read on the record. Uh, he again went through everything that you're going through with a normal uh, plea-based conviction, but also addressed the um, pieces of the stipulation and so here the other thing that the Nebraska Supreme Court does is they uh, fail to address the state's argument, which was asking to look at a piece of the sentencing for plain error. Um, and they say that the property proper remedy is simply to dismiss the appeal, uh, not address any of those claims um, and get rid of it that way. And so the appeal was dismissed. 
Okay, that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. I think we have a Court of Appeals, and I don't know about you, but I'm going to shoot through a lot of mine pretty quick. Yeah, jumping straight into them. Um, so the first case we have is an adoption case in uh, Ray adoption of Antius A. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but a ton of facts here, and the crux of the issue is whether or not uh, there was abandonment in this case. And so whether or not there were six months of abandonment prior to uh, the petition for adoption. And again, you know, a lot of facts here, a lot of sad facts, uh, but the crux uh, of this case kind of lies with the fact that dad was not involved with the child's child's life really at all, but there were a couple of uh, district court uh, cases where... uh, you know, at various times he would, um, you know, do something to either try to have modification or he would, uh, you know, have a complaint where he was seeking parenting time and potentially uh, would be paying child support. Uh, But even after he was awarded parenting time in uh, one of these modifications, he never exercised it. Uh, He never sent gifts. He never made contact. He never uh, did anything to try to be a parent. And so even though there were these district court filings for modification and some, you know, maybe small things like letters, uh, the Court of Appeals found and affirmed um, the lower court judgment that uh, there was abandonment and um, there was no error on the record in finding that and affirmed. That's a published one, right? Yes, that is a published opinion. State v. Learman. This is a uh, appeal out of the Antelope County District Court for a denial of post-conviction relief following an evidentiary hearing. Mr. Learman was convicted of a number of serious felonies. Um, the specific facts that he alleges for post-conviction relief were that the trial counsel was ineffective for failing to call two specific witnesses to doctors um, who allegedly saw the victims um, and then travel logs some failure to introduce self-made travel logs uh, for an alibi defense. So he said that was uh, ineffective assistance counsel to do either one of those. They said based on the record um, there was enough to convict and that the doctor's testimony would have been um, you know, uh, cumulative. So they denied his uh, a um, request for post-conviction relief, and that denial was affirmed in the Court of Appeals. Okay, next case is State v. Barber. This is another denial of a uh, post-conviction relief coming out of Dawes County. Uh, here, the defendant was convicted um, of, again, some serious charges, first-degree uh, sexual assault, um, and the denial was based on, uh, or the alleged uh, ineffective assistance of counsel was based on failure to uh, call a couple of witnesses and present uh, cell phone evidence. Here it was dealt with uh, because it was not prejudicial. And then there was another piece where it was failure to um, test a piece of betting for evidence. And again, um, there was no prejudice here. Uh, He was not able to demonstrate prejudice. And so therefore the denial of the post-conviction relief was affirmed. State versus Billy J. Brown. This is an appeal out of the Lancaster County District Court. Criminal appeal. Um, Mr. Brown was convicted uh, by jury of third-degree domestic uh, assault and was sentenced to 365 days with the Nebraska Department of Corrections. On appeal, he alleged insufficient evidence to convict and that the sentence was excessive. I mean, the facts here in this case describe just a horrible domestic violence incident. Um, And the jury, he was originally charged with second-degree domestic, uh, terroristic threats, first-degree false imprisonment, child abuse. And then he was ultimately only convicted of the third-degree domestic assault. 
um, the lesser included of the second degree domestic. So um, he appealed that for insufficiency of evidence. The you know you're asking the court to reweigh things, and and the standard is for in light most favorable to the state is how they should look at the facts. And upon those facts, there was sufficient evidence. The court of appeals finds here, and the sentence wasn't uh, excessive. It was within the statutory range. Um, I do often wonder, you know, it, the 365, uh, you know, where that line is uh, necessarily. Is it one below the line before you're in the range or not? I don't know. But here they said it was not excessive. And um, then they affirmed the district court. Okay. Next case is Fuller versus Burrito Builders, uh, Lincoln 102. Uh, this is a fall case, not slip and fall case, fall case, uh, premises liability issue. Uh, where Fuller had fallen at a uh, Lincoln restaurant location, uh, Pancheros Mexican Grill, and was suing based on falling here. Uh, Just brief on the analysis uh, for premises liability. Owner and occupier uh, created the condition and knew of the condition, um, that they should have realized the condition involved an unreasonable risk, uh, that they should have expected that the visitor would either not discover or realize the risk or would fail to protect themselves against that danger, (laughs) Uh, that they used uh, failed to use reasonable care in protecting the visitor, and the condition was the proximate cause uh, of the damage to the visitor. And here, uh, this is an appeal from summary judgment. Um, the summary judgment was granted because um, Fuller failed to uh, prove that there was uneven concrete or that there was um, any sort of uh, dangerous condition uh, that should have been remedied, and uh, failing to prove an essential element um, renders the other facts immaterial, and that was the basis for the granting of summary judgment, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. State v. Parks, this is a criminal interlocutory appeal, uh, alleging that the speedy trial... um, well, the constitutional right to speedy trial and the statutory right to speedy trial were violated. And one of the basis was the continuance by prior trial counsel without consent of the defendant should not count uh, against the uh, speedy trial clock. And the trial court found the uh, motion for absolute discharge uh, meritless and patently frivolous. On appeal, um, the Court of Appeals said that the uh, constitutional speedy trial is not reviewable uh, on interlocutory appeal. So you can't review the constitutional aspect of the speedy trial issue there. But you can review the statutory speedy, uh, speedy trial interlocutorily. Uh, they go through the math. Um, they do all the uh, continuances and they apply those towards the defendant, even those that uh, he claims were without his consent uh, filed by trial counsel. And ultimately they find only 49 days have elapsed since the information and um, the uh, only 49 days have elapsed against the speedy trial clock. So they say there was no error and affirm. Uh, Kaplan versus State. This is an appeal um, from uh, district court's determination that they lack subject matter jurisdiction over a declaratory judgment action against the state of Nebraska and the Nebraska State Patrol. Uh, the facts basically here are uh, Kaplan was a registered sex offender, believed that he should not be required to register as a sex offender, and so in order to achieve that, uh, he sued the state of Nebraska and Nebraska State Patrol, Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, and Lincoln Police Department seeking a declaratory judgment that he was not required to further register as a sex offender under the uh, Uh, SOAR registration requirement. Um, And uh, here the uh, state of Nebraska, Nebraska State Patrol, and the other parties um, 
asserted sovereign immunity. Uh, the district court agreed and found that because there was sovereign or is sovereign immunity, uh, there uh, was no jurisdiction for the district court to hear the action um, and dismissed. The Court of Appeals um, reviewed and affirmed that dismissal. State v. Tucker, uh, it's a criminal pro se denial of a motion for new trial based on new evidence. Um, now, there's a, a pretty good law chunk here, actually, on motions for new trial based on new evidence uh, that you can go through, like, what are the elements of that and, and how you prove it and the procedure regarding that. So that's, that's you know, an interesting part of this case. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's not um, very informative. The district court ultimately denied the motion for a new trial, and um, that was affirmed by the Nebraska Court of Appeals. And there's some interesting, I guess, uh, discussion about DNA uh, and how that was applied to Mr. Tucker. Um, but outside of that, it is affirmed. Is that it? That was good. No, I mean, is that everybody? That's it? No, that's what we got. That's the whole crew? Yeah, I think we marched through them all. Oh, man, I'm not ready to, to play the song. I'm ready to be done. I'm not ready to be done. Oh, I just want to sit here forever. <laughs> Let's just sit here with a microphone in front of uh, me. Yeah, I would like that. Let's just leave. You got a hot Let's mic. Let's just leave, it, leave on. it on. Leave yeah, it on. Just leave the hot you mic know, going. You want to document your future, right? Yeah. And your present. Exactly. And you go back and listen to it. It, it double your life. Is that how that would work? <laughs> I don't know that that's how that would work. I don't think so. Let's have a great week and a great weekend. Uh, my, let's go back to episode one. Oh, oh, the tag from the beginning. Mount St. Helens erupted on March 27th, 1980. I was not alive. 80. Wow, look at that. I called that. I knew it was in the 80s. Yeah, AT, you, were, you just got AT. in there. You were just three months. Skated three months right in there. in there, yep. Let's go back to episode one for our disclaimer. Uh, this has been Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt from Anderson Klein, Brewster & Brandt. We have offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Gone.